Veronica Scottness does not lead a traditional life. Like the rest of us, COVID impacted us all in a monumental way. And for her, she decided to forego the common luxuries we're all accustomed to and live her life at sea on a 42-foot boat in Finnmark, Norway, within the Arctic Circle. While doing routine work as a skipper on various ships in the area, she kept noticing the incessant waves of trash that would wash ashore. She decided to do something about it. She now helps various nonprofits with ocean conservation efforts that seek to remove trash from the ocean and recycle wherever possible. This is her story. You were speaking of this concept of overwinter. Now, myself included, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners, they probably don't know a lot of sailing terms. So do you want to just explain like some of the problems you've had in the last couple of days in terms of what overwintering is? And I know you had some issue where someone kicked you out of the harbor and you're trying to find a place to be more permanent for the winter. So what's that like? Yeah, so essentially, because I live in the Arctic, so the winter here can get a little bit harsh. We have around uh, 40 days of uh, no sunlight at all, and temperatures easily reach like uh, minus 40 degrees Celsius. Uh, I'm not sure. I think it's also minus 40 in in Fahrenheit. So, um, yeah, like that kind of describes a typical uh, Arctic winter up here. So it's very important for us to, or for me to find a harbor or port where I can feel like the boat is safe, just in case you also get stuck somewhere, if that makes sense. Um, because obviously in a in a hurricane, in minus 40 degree weather, you can't really move the boat. So um, you need to make sure that the boat is safely um, in port at at the time when like the storms start hitting and the hurricanes start hitting and like the winter really sets in. So for me that means uh, finding a port, but it's also um, not that many settlements around here. So you're you're kind of limited in in the amount of uh, villages and ports that are that are also good. And um, there are not so many sailboats. It's a lot of fishing vessels. So most harbors are. Uh, are made for fishing vessels or with fishing vessels in mind, which means they are usually not as deep because sailboats have this deep keel. It means that it goes quite far down into the ocean, whereas fishing vessels are usually more shallow built. So uh, it's always a little bit of a challenge, but I think I finally found a harbor. (laughs) Awesome. Now, is that the kind of thing where you just show up to a dock and you can kind of use anyone's dock or do you have to like, is there, you know, in the U.S., everything's like super uh, formulaic. So you have to go through like a registration process and pay a fee and all this kind of stuff. So in where, where you are, is, is everyone pretty friendly about it or is it, uh, how, does that, how does that work? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's very informal. So normally, maybe you will find some contacts, so you will like ask around. And if you can't go into this harbor, then they for sure know someone else on like another island or somewhere. Uh, you know, uh, the area of Finnmark is at the same size as as Denmark in um, in area. Uh, I'm trying to think of a U.S. American state that I could kind of compare, but I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, but we are only 70,000 people in this area. So you can imagine it's, it's, it's a very vast area that is uh, unpopulated as well. Uh, and people know each other, like everyone has connections somewhere. So, uh, yeah, usually you would just maybe call someone beforehand and or you just show up and you ask and you kind of hope for the best. But again, the distances are very long. 
So if you make the travel to like one harbor, you kind of want to make sure that there's space there, <laughs> especially if there's like an incoming hurricane or, or something. So usually if I'm sailing solo, if I don't have to, I will prefer to go during daytime or at least uh, when it's light. Of course, in the summer, because we're in the Arctic Circle, we have midnight sun. So we have 24 hours of daylight all, all summer. Um, so that's great. So in the summer, you don't really have to consider it. But uh, yeah, in the winter, I, I try to at least go when it's light just because it's a bit nicer and, and you can see, you know. Um, but it's not really a problem to go during night as well because there's uh, not a lot of traffic. It's not like a, a busy port or anything like you will have in, in bigger cities. Okay, sweet. So then let's let's go back to the beginning. Very basic. Are you originally from Finnmark or was this something that um, you, as you've been sailing, you kind of liked this area and have gravitated to? So kind of where did you grow up and like what was the, uh, what was the inspiration to, to buy a sailboat in, in, the, in the first place? Yeah, so I'm originally from Norway, but uh, I grew up a little bit further south on a piece of coast that's called Sundmøre. Um, so it's not within the Arctic Circle, but it's still on the coast. And I always grew up with boats and uh, my family is like a fisherman family. So uh, I, I had very strong connections to, to the ocean. And then um, at some point I just uh, found like this fascination for the Arctic. And I started studying a program that was called uh, Arctic Nature Guiding, which is essentially like outdoor recreation in the Arctic. In Norway, we have a concept called friluftsliv, uh, which is a very uh, culturally important uh, concept for Norwegians, which is essentially just um, the philosophy of being outdoors in nature and with nature. And um, I was uh, really interested in this. So I, I did a three-year bachelor program in uh, friluftsliv in the Arctic and yeah, essentially recreation in the Arctic. And uh, that kind of made me move um, a bit further north and then I also did one year on Svalbard which is uh, an island group it's uh, kind of in between mainland Norway and the North Pole but it's uh, it belongs to the Kingdom of Norway so I did a program there and I became like very fascinated with uh, with living in the Arctic and then at the time I was working within tourism when uh, Corona came I, I don't know if you know this pandemic that we had <laughs> yeah <laughs> So um, um, Svalbard, uh, where I was working with tourism, I got uh, very, um, how do you say, like hit by Corona, like very much affected because of the tourism and travel restrictions. And they basically shut down the whole island because it's such a, it's such a fragile infrastructure there. There's no hospital or anything. So they just decided to shut everything down. And of course, everyone went bankrupt and everyone had to had to leave almost that were working within tourism. So for me, I, I lost my job and my apartment during this. And I, I felt like it was just the best time to be like, mm, OK, what should I do? <laughs> <laughs> and I've always wanted to buy a boat. So I figured like, OK, this is my shot. shot actually, this is the best chance I get. <laughs> nice. So that so is the boat that you have. Um, is that something that like you got it from like a like a? I don't really know how it works. Like I don't know what the Nor Norwegian equivalent of Craigslist is, but like you go on like some website and like people are just sell their boats, or did you like is it a family heirloom or something like that, or how'd you how'd you find the boat? 
And how'd you know it's the right product, I guess? Yeah, essentially it was a Craigslist uh, thing uh, with the Norwegian equivalent. Um, but yeah, I, I bought it secondhand. She's a, um, she, it's called an Anse 42, which was a Norwegian built uh, uh, boat maker in the 80s. So it's actually over 40 years old or 40 years old this year in 2022. So, uh, yeah, I bought it used, of course. <laughs> and um, uh, I don't know, I think it was like a gut feeling thing. I actually, I bought it unseen, which you are not supposed to do. But I had a friend to, like go and check it out because it was in Oslo and I was on Svalbard at the time. And so I had a friend like go check it out, and he said, "Yeah, like this this looks very good." Uh, and uh, I don't know, in, in in I just had like a gut feeling that it was the right boat, and I really think so. Like I'm I'm still very happy with it. I don't know if it was just like terrible luck or <laughs> or what it was, but <laughs> but yeah, not not too much maintenance, I hope. Of course, there's a little bit. It's still a 40-year-old vessel, so there's always uh, quite a lot to do. And um, it is quite big, like it's it's 42 feet. Um, so for just me, it's quite a lot to handle. I think uh, if someone were to consider buying a boat and say and selling solo, I would maybe recommend opting for a smaller boat. Just depending on how much maintenance you want to do, you know, it's a saying that like more bigger boat, bigger problems and bigger money. So that's, yeah, take what you want. <laughs> so my understanding from BSOF of what I've read about, about you and, and your, um, your, di- your journal entries, as you were sailing around at, during this time, you realized that there was a, a lot of trash, right? So how did um, the whole marine waste uh, effort come to be? And how is that related from when you were sailing during this time that you're... Yeah, essentially, it's uh, it, it's uh, a bit like what you said. I was starting to sail the Norwegian coast. I bought the boat in Oslo and I wanted to sail it to northern Norway, to the Arctic. And uh, it was a, a three-month journey from Oslo to the north of Norway. It's a, it's a long country, but I also wanted to have a lot of time and like not rush it. Uh, it's, it's a very beautiful coastline. And at the time I was uh, visiting small islands, you know, really small places where there were no humans at all. It was so far off. Uh, You could only get there by boat and there was no like infrastructure, no buildings, nothing. It was just like wild nature, you know. And I saw so much plastic. And it struck me that like these places that have absolutely no contact with humans are still so affected by humans in terms of marine waste so i started like picking up trash as i went (laughs) but it was of course like way too much for me to handle with just a boat and like maybe a few bin bags and you know i could pick maybe 10 bags in a day and uh, but there would be so much left you know so by the time I started kind of posting on Instagram because I was really frustrated by what I was seeing and I was like picking and I was like, it's not working. I'm not doing anything. I'm just picking and picking. And then to the next island I go and there is, you know, 10 tons more. So I was getting really frustrated and posting a lot <laughs> online. And by the time I reached the Arctic Circle, this organization um, called In the Same Boat, they had contacted me. They are a Norwegian NGO that works 100% with the marine waste and cleaning marine waste. 
Uh, so they contacted me and they said like, I think maybe you should come and work for us. <laughs> so, um, and and that was kind of it. I went down there. They they have their main base in Norland, which is um, kind of in the middle of Norway in a way. Um, so I went down there and I had a talk with them, and, and it seemed like we had, you know, the same interests when it came to picking marine waste from an idealistic standpoint and not necessarily an economical standpoint, you know, to earn money or anything. So yeah, that looked very good. And then um, I was given, I was actually given my own um, team and my own project. They wanted to start up in in Finnmark at the very north of Norway. And uh, they basically just gave me all, <laughs> like, here you go, start up a team, have fun. Um, so I got all boats and and everything, and I, I started my own team up there with help from In the Same Boat, of course. That's incredible. And I believe um, in your first year, you collected something like 50,000 kilograms of trash. Do I have that yep. right? Yeah, correct. That's That's amazing. Um, and now uh, another, another thing worth mentioning is, uh, part, I, I believe, and I'm hoping you could explain this a little bit better than I can, because I, I have a very cursory understanding of it, but a big reason why some of the trash is in these remote places in the Arctic Circle is because of the, the Gulf Stream, right? So it, it kind of loops through the Atlantic and, and I don't know how it works on the Pacific Ocean. I can only say for the Atlantic, but it kind of loops through and, and that's how it kind of scoops all the trash from the more populated places such as the U.S. and, and London and everywhere else, right? Yeah, so essentially uh, both the Gulf Stream and the North Atlantic Drift, they both head towards uh, the Arctic. So, but especially the Gulf Stream, it uh, it comes from, you know, the U.S. and it, it kind of goes around and then it, it hits Norway and it follows the Norwegian coast uh, up and into the Arctic, and then it kind of does a loop and it goes down again. And um, that is partially the reason why we have so much much trash in, in the Arctic, because there are not so many humans, so there's not so many people who, who are here to throw plastic in the ocean. So um, a lot of what we find is from, yeah, the US and from continental Europe. We often find um, packages that has like U.S. Uh, logos and writing, um, but also from mainland Europe, especially from the U.K. And uh, from Russia, we find a lot because we're quite close to the Russian border. And um, But I would say 90% of what we find is from the fishing industry. So from uh, fishing and fish farming and also the oil sector. That is like the majority, especially in terms of weight, because it's often heavy industrial. I don't know in terms of like singular pieces, you know, it's a difference between finding like one plastic bag and one like 400 kilo net. They're kind of considered one piece, both of them. So uh, I don't know in terms of pieces, but in terms of weight, it's definitely the fishing industry that is um, mostly responsible for the for the plastic in the Arctic. So I was really fascinated when I saw that something you do on your day-to-day is this trash database. So could you tell us a little bit about what that's all about and how that works? Yeah, so essentially right now we're in a um, kind of trial period where we are mapping out uh, the coast of Finnmark. And this is uh, in cooperation with um, 
you know, uh, something called Handelsmiljöfond, which probably has an English name, but I can't think of it right now. Um, it's essentially like a fund. So whenever Norwegian people buy plastic bags, it's like a piece of that price or like one kroner, um, which is like, I don't know, a tenth of a dollar or something like that. <laughs> but uh, part of that goes to this fund. And the fund is, uh, it, it, the intention is to help reduce um, marine waste or plastic waste in the nature. So every time Norwegians buy plastic bags, the money goes to to this fund and they are the ones funding the operation in Finnmark. And um, yeah, so essentially we are mapping out the entire coast. So the idea now is to cover a lot of area in Finnmark. So we go very fast. We pick like a lot of heavy objects, but we don't do any like detailed cleaning. Um, and the idea is because we want to know where the plastic ends up so that we know in a year or two, like where we need to put effort. Does that make sense? So now we're kind of just like browsing the coast, going really fast and picking as much as we can. Of course, we are. We want to clean the beaches completely, but we're not picking like microplastics. Uh, we're not focusing on that. We're focusing on like total tons. And um, yeah, we're putting everything into a database and this is happening all over Norway, actually. So this is happening in Finnmark and all the way down to Oslo, so the whole coast. Um, and yeah, the idea is to know in a few years where plastic accumulates. So we know like where we can put our efforts in the future. That's so cool. I, I'm like, that, that, that kind of stuff really, really fascinates me, especially because it's like, you're out there, you're kind of boots on the ground, like going, doing all the cleaning. And then you can see the fruits of your labor when you kind of take a step back and you look at the big picture of the, of the map and, and the whole database as a whole. Um, so that's, that's really, really awesome. Uh, I guess my, um, my, my only, or, or, or my next question would be, so where, where does all these, uh, where, where does all this trash go? Like where, when you, when you collect it and you have it in the container, it's like, what, what's kind of the next step typically? We send it to a recycling factory. Uh, it's a bit different in p different parts of Norway, how they handle it. The issue with marine waste is that it's very often full of salt. And the salt uh, is very hard to recycle because it, uh, well, you should ask someone who, who works with this. But as far as I, I, I know, it, it damages this recycling machine a little bit. So most of the plastic gets burnt, but it gets burnt in, you know, a contained, secure uh, facility. And it gets produced into heating, mostly for Norwegians. So, and, and these um, burning facilities, they burn the trash at like 900 degrees, 800, 900 degrees, so really, really high temperatures that make sure, you know, everything is contained. Because, you know, when you burn plastic, a lot of fumes get left out and also a lot of uh, microplastics. If you burn it just like in your fire, you're going to just have like a million pieces of microplastics. So it's very important to have a, a contained facility that that can handle like all the fumes and the microplastic that can like clean it so it doesn't like end up everywhere but we try to recycle what we can and of course anything that is still usable like for instance these troll balls that are used for fishing there are these like floating uh, uh, balls made of plastic 
uh, that they use to like mark where where they have their nets, for instance. We often find those that are intact, and so we will always give them back to the fishermen or, or like offer to give them away. Or if we find some fenders or nets or whatever that can like still be used, <laughs> we give them back. And I'm very strict. I say, okay, but don't throw it in the ocean because I don't want to pick it up next year. <laughs> so <laughs> make sure I give this to you, but make sure you take care of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's really cool. And I don't know if you know, but in the U.S., it's really funny because whenever, um, you know, like all these uh, green energy initiatives come into conversation or like re uh, recycling or, or whatever it has to do with like climate related stuff, they always say, oh, well, just like at Norway, you know, and, and so Norway is always like kind of our leading example of, uh, of like how to how to kind of go green, so to speak, and uh it's really interesting to hear your perspective because you're literally in it. And so you're doing all of the, uh, all of the work and kind of putting in all the effort. And so it's really fascinating to see, to see it come to life, you know? Yeah. I've heard several people say that um, the, the Norwegian coastline is kind of known for being very clean and, and uh, you know, very like pure in a way. But um, it is one of the most polluted coastlines in the world. And it is because of uh, the Gulf Stream and the industries that are in the North Sea and the Barents Sea, fishing industries. So um, it's not as clean as it looks like in the pictures, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Oh, cool. So, so then I guess just kind of walk us through, like, what is, uh, what is like a day in the life for Veronica on, uh, I, I know it's, it's kind of by the season, it's different, whether it's the summer or the winter and, and so forth, but like, generally speaking, like, how does, uh, what keeps you sane? Like what, what's going through your mind? How's your routine work? All that kind of fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because I feel like I live a fairly normal life in a way. But I guess like everything that you do every day becomes normal, like no matter what it is. But uh, essentially, um, I work as a skipper for this organization, or I have been for the past two years. And I work on a uh, six months off, six months on kind of shift. So we have very short seasons here uh, that where we are able to pick trash. So for the summer, we kind of just work every day, like every weekend, every day, it doesn't matter. And uh, we work very intensely just to get as much done as possible during when we can. So it means that in the winter, I have a lot of time off. So in the winter, I, I go travel or <laughs> I sail or I read a lot. I don't know. <laughs> Do you tend to take the winters to go south because in, in the southern hemisphere the winter is like hotter so or do you like to just freeze up in the in the arctic circle um well i definitely like uh, to go south i do i have overwintered a few times uh, where i've like stayed for the whole winter and but you know you don't see the sun between uh, november and february so it's like completely dark you can see some northern lights it's very cold and a lot of people do leave for the winter actually so yeah i and i really like to travel and that's also part of why i bought the boat is because i love traveling and for me the winter is just like a perfect time to travel and um I, I do love the concept of of slow traveling. So if I can if I can go away for like a really long period of time and just go to one place and experience that for like 
a long time instead of like going fast between a lot of places. I would always prefer that. So the winter is just perfect for me because there's not much going on up here anyway. You're kind of stuck in the dark. <laughs> so of all the places you've traveled, is it typically uh, by boat specifically? Like, is it mostly in the in the region that you're at or have you taken the boat south? Like, I, I know you can fly south when you dock the boat, but like, have you ever taken the boat around like on any crazy journeys or anything? Or do you typically keep the boat north and then you'll kind of be free to do Whatever you want. Yeah, so uh, because I've been, um, th this boat has only been to Norway, the, my own boat, but I've used to work as a deckhand on a few different ships. So I've been sailing a lot in like across the Atlantic and down in the Canaries and South America and um, at the west coast of Africa and yeah, just around the South Atlantic Ocean. So that's been really nice. That's a typical uh, winter activity for me. But I usually leave the boat here in Norway also because I live on board. So and, and I, I still want to be here in the Arctic for at least the next few years. I feel like I'm not yet done exploring the Arctic by boat. So I want to have the boat here just because I want to come back in the summer and it's, it would be a long way to like go back and forth every time. And again, back to like the concept of of slow traveling is that uh, if if I go somewhere with my boat, for instance, I would like to stay there for quite a while and like experience and maybe even experience like all four seasons in just that one place. So so that's, um, yeah, I usually keep the boat here, but we'll see, like maybe in a few years I will, uh, I will leave Norway and maybe even leave the Arctic and head somewhere. Um, but then that would be like, for good or not for good, that sounded very dramatic, but like for a long, <laughs> for a long time. Sure, sure. Off to a new horizon, new, new adventures. Yeah. <laughs> um, would you ever like have people on or do you, like, do you think having another person on your boat would be advantageous or would it kind of set you back a little bit? Because I know you, I, I, I believe you said your boat was fairly big for, for what, what you use it for, so. Is that is that always a hindrance, or do you kind of like to keep your boat as like your your private spot? It is a quite a big boat. The issue with my boat is that it only has two um, berths or um, like rooms, <laughs> so essentially I can fit like maybe three or four people comfortably in the boat. And yeah, it's a bit like what you said. It's it's my my private home, so I do keep it private. But of course, uh, friends and family are welcome to join. And uh, I do enjoy having company on board, especially like good friends uh, that can kind of come. And um, when I was sailing the Norwegian coast, I treated my boat almost like a hostel that was moving. So I would always have friends on board, like coming and going. Uh, it was it was really nice. I don't think I ever sailed solo for those three months for the whole Norwegian coast because there, there will always be people, you know, in and out all the time. So, so that was really nice. And um, yeah, I, I definitely enjoy having company. I haven't opened my boat to like strangers yet. I know people ask me like every day <laughs> if they can come on board. But um, um, it, it's always tricky to have people on board as well because because you, you often have to teach them how everything works and, and, and all this. And also because it is your home, so you kind of want to um, keep your personal life and your 
uh, I don't know, public life uh, a bit separate. Maybe you need to get a you need to get another boat <laughs> so that you can use the one as your house and the other one's like an Airbnb for boating. You know, you just take people out to see or something. Yeah, second boat. I can already imagine all the work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. Speaking of strangers, like, have have you ever had any like sketchy encounters where people? Obviously not on your boat, but like I, I imagine if you if you dock your boat and you go to get groceries or something, then have you ever had an experience where someone's like trying to mess with your boat while you're gone? Or does that not really happen? We have to think of these crazy things in the US because people are nuts over here, but <laughs> Yeah, um no, I've never had any any experiences like that. The the I also try to be very careful, especially on what I post in public. So I will never like share my location or or anything like that. And I usually, if I if I share some place I've been, it's always after I've already left that place. So um, a lot of people see like my stories and they're like, "Oh, you're you're here," and I'm like, uh, "Actually, I left two weeks ago." I'm, I'm but I'm just posting it now. <laughs> so so I always try to kind of uh, be careful about uh, uh, what I'm sharing, especially online. But this this area is in general like very peaceful and people really take care of each other. We, it's also why I really like having the boat here because people, even if I'm away from the boat, uh, if I'm traveling or something, there's always someone to look after it. Um, the only thing I'm, I have experienced is uh, like a drunk fishermen showing up uh, in my boat in the middle of the night after they've been to the pub or something. And uh, I can uh, sometimes be a little bit uncomfortable because again it's your home like can you imagine if someone just like stood in your living room in the middle of the night you feel a bit invaded in a way so I've had a few of those encounters and uh, when I was working close to the Russian border we would also have like Russian uh, fishermen that would just like come on board and stood there and speak Russian (laughs) I would be like excuse me can you please leave (laughs) <laughs> so those are the only encounters but they're, they're like rather harmless <laughs> that's wild now it, I guess like the uh, oh I, as a side this just popped in, into my head but do you, for internet do you have like a like a, a hotspot or something or like how does that yeah I have a hotspot with the data so I'm able to have as long as I'm in Norway I'm able to have a I'm able to be online for the most part. It's often a lot of uh, a little bit poor signals because you're quite far away from settlements or or anything. But um, I would say in in general it's pretty good. And I have also a Wi-Fi antenna on board, so I can take in Wi-Fi from from other places. If I'm in the city, for instance, I can like take in their Wi-Fi. Or, oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> okay, sweet. Yeah, I, I was just curious. Um, now, the other kind of danger, so there there was like the people danger, which doesn't seem to be an issue. Now, what about Mother Nature danger, where it's like, if you're at it, this has always been my, like, I, I, I'm not in any way a sailor. I've never, like, I, I've never even really done any kind of long-term time on a boat. But, like, when you're out at sea, I'm assuming, like, deep sea, and there's, like, these 20, 30-foot waves, like, doesn't it? How does it not like knock your boat over? Like, what do you, I don't know. This is just my ignorance, but like, how do you like, 
are you, are you supposed to deal with that on a boat? Yeah, I think it's funny because a lot of people um, who um, maybe haven't been at sea so much, they always fear like the open ocean, like what you say, like the deep sea and everything. But I always feel like that's the safest spot to be. Really? Because uh, there's nothing to hit. Uh, there's no uh, like local wind variations. There's no like currents or uh, waves that are breaking usually. So the closer you get to the shore, that's kind of where it starts to get dangerous because if you lose control, you risk like being shoved into a mountain or you will have these strange currents. You will have really strange winds coming from the land. So the open ocean to me is like, oh, finally I can breathe out and just be out here. Yes, sailboats are, are built um, with this long keel that I mentioned earlier. So yeah, you will have a, like a really, really heavy, uh, usually lead or steel keel on the boat. And that's essentially what's like keeping the boat uh, stable. So uh, it depends a little bit on from uh, sailboat to sailboat. But uh, my boat is built so that the mast can actually be 10 degrees below the waterline. And the boat is still going to straighten up. So you would have to be very unlucky to actually <laughs> flip the boat uh, over. Maybe if you had like two really big waves that are crashing on top of you, maybe it could happen. But uh, in general, you don't really hear that much about sailboats um, flipping so much. Oh, that's good. Um, it's a difference, uh, for instance, for a catamaran, it's a bit different. And some boats are, are also built a bit different, but... Um, in general, um, these are really good for like high latitude sailing where it becomes, you know, it can be like hurricanes or at least heavy gales out there. Okay. Well, that's, that's good. Keeping you, keeping you somewhat safe here. Now, is there a, is there like a, a particular place that you've gone anywhere that, that stands out in your mind? It's like one of the most remote or picturesque or or any any place that you really find a lot of joy in in having gone there whether it's the adventure of getting there or whether it's the place itself like i know you've posted a couple of pictures of like some abandoned lighthouses and things like that which i thought were cool but i'm like i'm just curious in your your own perspective like what you think has been kind of the most fulfilling most fruitful experience of yeah, it's hard to say because there's so many. Uh, I think up here definitely Svalbard is very high on, on the list. Svalbard is, uh, is a very remote island, um, very close to the North Pole, and it's like a high Arctic area uh, with polar bears. And, you know, you have to carry a rifle everywhere you go because uh, because of the polar bears. It's actually mandatory to carry a rifle. Really? The only place in the world where you can get a fine for not carrying guns. So wow, that's so that's a definitely a very interesting place. And um, northern Norway and Norway in general is, um, I mean, I might be a bit biased, but it is one of my favorite places to sail. And uh, of course, uh, first time I crossed the Atlantic was, um, was a really big experience. Just the feeling of being out at sea for that long. And we spent 23 days crossing. So it's just this you really get a feeling of how big the ocean is. And the Atlantic isn't even a very big ocean. I mean, you have the Pacific. and So the Pacific is also on the list. But um, yeah, I think the feeling of just seeing how large or getting that feeling of how large the ocean is and also crossing between continents. You know, you, we left Africa 
and then you you just look at the ocean for for 23 days and then suddenly you're in South America and it is a very strange feeling. <laughs> so that would also be like one of my favorite experiences. Yeah, sure. And and now when you do something like that, um again, this is just my my ignorance, I guess, but how do you because it's so long you said that was a couple weeks, so like how do you prepare in terms of like how much food do you have on board or like because Obviously, you can't just go to the grocery store in the middle of the ocean. So, do you do you rely a lot on fishing, or is it, or is there just like some um, like non-perishable stuff that you have, or like what what kind of goes into the preparation for like a transatlantic voyage? Like that? Yeah, you need to make sure you have enough wine. <laughs> That's the most <laughs> important. Um, and of course, a lot of um, canned food and like food that can can last for a while. And then it's usually like you. Uh, the first week you will have the best meals because you will eat everything that is like fresh and you will have vegetables and then as the further you go the worse or the lower quality your meals become uh, i don't have a freezer on board so um i can't uh, use freezer in the winter the whole boat becomes a freezer so that's kind of convenient um at the time when i sailed across the atlantic i was working on a really big ship it was a three-masted schooner so we were like 30 people on board so it was a lot of room to like stock up on food. We needed a lot of food as well, but um, uh, yeah, we, we could uh, have enough room for food. But otherwise, I, I when I sail in Norway as well, I don't really visit shops that much. I try to always anchor up somewhere. I always prefer anchoring. So it, it would maybe be like three or four weeks between each time I actually go to a grocery store. So I, I do rely a lot on fishing. and. Uh, yeah, the food that like holds like dried food, and I also usually dry my own food sometimes. So, so yeah, there are many solutions to it. <laughs> do, do you have a, a particular fish that you, or or seafood in general that you like? My my favorite lobster, personally. But <laughs> I love all kinds of seafood. I really do. Uh, we get a lot of codfish up here, so you have to get really creative with your codfish and just make a lot of <laughs> variants of codfish. And uh, halibut is is also something that we get a lot, which is definitely one of my favorites. Sure, sure, cool. Now, when you were when you were first thinking of doing all this, like, did you have any inspiration from like, um, previous like like was uh polar exploration or like any of the kind of the people from history did that play a part at all or or have you is it always just kind of like an innate thing where like you know like you say your parents were taught you a lot so like was were you more inspired by like people from history or was it just something that like you you grew up with so you knew like I, you you grew up seeing all the beauty of the ocean and, and sailing yeah, so I, I grew up in Norway and in Norway we have a, a lot of these uh, polar explorers that we are very proud of. We have uh, Roald Amundsen who was the first person to uh, go to Antarctica or the center of Antarctica and uh, we have Fridtjof Nansen who skied across Greenland uh, or the first westerner to ski across Greenland. Of course, Greenland was already populated by, by Inuit so it's kind of a... Uh, imperialistic uh, way of seeing <laughs> yeah. things, but uh, but uh, Norwegians are very proud of it, nonetheless. So um, definitely, I, I grew up like reading tales about uh, 
especially Roald Amundsen and um, and a lot of these like Norwegian polo explorers. Uh, a lot of them were men. We do have like a few female um, polo explorers as well, but the most famous ones are, are men from that time. So so at least at the time when I was younger, I was really inspired by by the, these Norwegians. Yeah, and then in later times, it's become. I mean, now we have to see it maybe from a modern eye, or maybe we view it in a more modern eye. And yeah, you you know you can discuss the <laughs> imperialistic tendencies of of these uh, explorers, but uh, they were they they did have some really impressive um, explorations, at least. But we have to give them credit for that. <laughs> I mean, something that I find really fascinating about Edmondson, or at least the explorers of that time was you saw there was kind of this dynamic where there were three moving parts. There was the one, which was like the research. So a lot of people went on these voyages to collect specimens and to do like research in that, in that sense. You also had the explorers who were like these adventure seeking adrenaline junkie people like Amundsen and, and a lot of these other folks. And then you had the third one, which was the imperialist who was like the guy who wanted to stake the flag in the ground and say, you know, I, put the U.S. flag or I put the Norwegian flag or whatever it was. So you, you had these three like very different personalities, at least in like the, the books that I've read. And it, it is really fascinating how it's like there, there was that imperialist side, which by modern eyes doesn't, you know, there's a lot of <laughs> issue with that. But um, I think when you kind of interpret history in the context by which it happened, it's it's re- it really is fascinating, like what they went through, and um, I, you know, I, you might have heard of like the the book Endurance with Chaplin's book and all that, and then I I read a book about Amundsen's journey in Antarctica where they got stuck and they had to do the overwintering, or I don't know if that's the right term, but they had to like stay there throughout the winter, and it's very hard to conceptualize, I think, by modern eyes. So that's why I think it's really cool that for you to be going like living on the boat full time and like you're kind of you're kind of experiencing that to an extent like it's you're not fearing for your life obviously but like there is an extent of like that that adventure spirit like you just want to kind of get out there and see what the world has to offer because it's a big world it's a big ocean there's a lot of really really interesting stuff out there you know so yeah it's 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 just really it's really inspiring to see to to hear what you're doing you're kind of planting your own flag in a way because you're like doing this in what I presume to be a fairly male dominated industry. So you're kind of staking your claim there in that sense too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You're actually sitting on the, uh, the South Pole book by Roald Amundsen at the moment. <laughs> it was the thickest book that I could find. So I'm using it as a tripod actually. <laughs> So yeah, I I absolutely think and and you mentioned Shackleton. I think Shackleton has been um, the inspiration for quite a lot of sailors and especially the high latitude the sailors. Uh, they always mention Shackleton because he was such a he was such an excellent captain and excellent navigator, and it really shows in the books as well like how how skilled he was. And uh, I think the same with with Amundsen is uh, these people had to be very calculated and smart in order to do this. It wasn't just like sheer luck or like just uh, adrenaline junkies uh, with with a lot of luck. They had to really plan out and um, in order to make these trips uh, successful. 
So I, I, I think um, they are very impressive and they are really fascinating to read. And they were definitely an inspiration for me when I when I started. And then some of the female explorers as well that we have uh, here in Norway. A, a great one for me was Cecilia Skog at the time. She was, um, well, she's more of a modern explorer, but she was the first, uh, at least Norwegian woman, to, to visit all like seven summits and, you know, do, do all these and visit the North Pole and the South Pole and everything. So I, I think it's uh, in uh, in Norway, we do very highly value these polar explorers. And I think that's also a source of inspiration for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I think there's um, there's definitely been a, a more recent push by, by female explorers in as I don't know, the last 50 or so years. And it's, it is really exciting. Like, um, I think the first, I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong about this, but I think the first person to ski across Antarctica was a, was a woman. Um, and so like, there's a lot of just really excited stuff. And there's another, um, woman still alive, still, you know, breaking all sorts of records, but she summited, K2, summited Everest, went to space, went to Antarctica. Like it's really, it, it, it's, it's a fascinating time in history because it gives everyone like, there's really not that many barriers now. Like everyone is kind of like, all right, let's be a team. Let's do this. Like, let's all kind of work together. Um, but in any event, it's, uh, it is just a wild time in history. So I'm a big fan of, quotes from people throughout history. And uh, so one thing I, I think I'll, I'll leave this on is a quote from Teddy Roosevelt where he said, uh, do what you can with what you have, where you are. And I think uh, you kind of embody that because you've been living on your own, learning how to be very, uh, like this kind of independent adventures, explorer spirit. You're doing a lot for the world. You're being part of the solution, not the problem. Um, I, I hope you keep it up. I, I think it's really inspiring. And uh, I, I'm just I'm just happy we had this opportunity to have this conversation. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm really glad to hear. It was really fun talking to you. Yeah, of course. All right. Thanks, everyone. Take care.